The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 34. The word of God speaks to us. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who, <coughs> excuse me, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Carol. Morning, friends. All right. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. And it's good to see you guys. Hey, if you're a guest or you're new to the church, something that we like to do uh, the majority of the time is just to pick a book of the Bible and preach through it from start to finish. And so that is why uh, on this Sunday morning, if you're new to our church, we're, we're in this text in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 34. And we're just a few weeks left in the book of 1 Corinthians. It feels like we've been in it for a long time. Um, and, and Paul is starting to, to land the plane for us. And so um, I want to pray for you guys this morning, invite you to pray for me, and then we'll jump in. So Father, thank you, for, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's both encouraging to us and it's challenging to us. And we just ask God that you would speak to us today. We wanna see Jesus lifted high, magnified, illuminated um, in this text. And we just ask God that you would do what you, you wish to do with us this morning and as we honor your word by studying it together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. So it, it didn't take me very long as a dad to 
develop my dad voice. And uh, I think it just came to me the moment my child was born. Um, and uh, even if you're not a father, you know what I'm talking about. My, my dad had a very distinct dad voice. And uh, I had the privilege of growing up as a very mischievous kid, and so he got a lot of use out of it. Um, you know, and sometimes you wield it unnecessarily and sinfully, but then sometimes it's actually really helpful in, in moments of need. And, you know, if, if your child is running out into the street about to get hit by a car, it's good to raise your voice and your tone and change your tone so that they know you mean business, right? It's better than a kind voice and, and a soft tone um, in moments of need like that. And the tone of this passage is more akin to the Apostle Paul's authoritative tone, or his dad voice, if you will, as he's continuing to reason with the people of Corinth about the resurrection. And it's, it's hard to miss, especially if you start by looking at verse 34, uh, one of the, the final verse of this passage we're studying today, um, as you see his voice rise and he says, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He says, wake up. What are you doing? You know, Paul's got a, a we've, we've seen this throughout this entire, le- this entire letter, but he has a very deep fatherly love for the people of Corinth. In the same way that, that many of you parents have for, for your own kids, that would make you willing to change your tone to stop them from running into the street, if you will. And he's spending this entire chapter hammering home the importance of the resurrection and subsequently the only reason that they have any hope in life or in death. And the people of Corinth, or at least some of the people in Corinth, are treating it like it's this inconsequential secondary issue. But as we're seeing, it's really the most consequential thing that's happened in human history. So they're calling themselves Christians while at the same time hypocritically doing things that tell a completely different story about what they profess to believe. And so this morning, we're going to tackle this passage a little bit um, differently than maybe you're used to from, from the back to the front. And so we're going to hit it in two sections. So first thing we're going to look at is the hypocritical lives of the people of Corinth and how that inevitably points to our own hypocrisy and fear that we experience. And then secondly, we're going to look at the assurances that the resurrection actually provides for them and for us that are the actual answers to those fears and those anxieties that lead to us uh, in our hypocrisy. And so, so let's jump in together. We're going to start in verse 29. If you want to turn there, it'll also be on the screen. Verse 29 says this. It says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Uh, this is one of the more interesting uh, things about this passage that people point to uh, pretty regularly. But it starts out with something that just really, really just makes no sense in light of what we know that the people of Corinth have been taught by Paul and from the words of Jesus. So some people in Corinth are making the claim that there is, try to, try to track with me here, no resurrection of the dead. But at the same time, they are baptizing living people on behalf of the dead. And so Paul's saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then why are you coming up with these odd things in order to somehow ensure someone's resurrection? It kind of breaks my brain a little bit. It's like the Abbott and Costello who's on first sketch. The more you listen to it, um, the more it makes you feel a little bit crazy. 
And what's wild is that we have no other record um, of anyone else doing this in any other churches at this point in history. And so what's happening here is it's kind of hard to explain because it was such a hard left turn from the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul. And, and to be clear, this is not a Christian practice, nor has it ever been a Christian practice. Um, it, this isn't a scenario where they were doing something in Corinth that was good and right and that ceased to happen anymore. It's a scenario where um, they, their brains broke a little bit um, and they started doing weird stuff, trying to figure things out on their own. And so they're believing They're saying in one hand, we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, but they're also at the same time baptizing each other, or maybe on on behalf of their deceased loved ones, so that they would experience the resurrection of the dead that they're saying that they don't even believe in. And then Paul kind of builds on this. He goes to verse 30 and 32. Why are we in danger every hour, he says? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, once again, if the dead are not raised and the resurrection hasn't already secured for us the things that it has, then what is the point of all the persecution that the church is facing and that Paul, in particular, is facing? Paul's saying, you guys are in danger. You're giving things up all the time that you don't want to give up. I'm constantly in danger. Um, And if the dead are not raised, then what are we doing? We're all hypocrites. So since you obviously care so little for your bodies, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just live it up. Why not just live it up if that's the case? And Paul's repeating a thought from an earlier passage to hammer this home. The reality is the Christian life is hard. It was for them. It is for us. And so if the resurrection didn't happen, to repeat a little bit of what we talked about last week, if you were here, why are we subjecting ourselves to all this hard stuff if it wasn't for, for this purpose? And then finally, in this, this chunk of scripture, in verse 33, we find out what he's alluding to is, is what is probably the source of their, their outside influence. Verse 33 is actually quoting a popular line from first century Roman theater when it says, bad company ruins good morals. And, and Paul's choosing his words specifically the way he wants to in this moment to, to get a message across because he's both saying to them, hey, you're actually doing this, and he's choosing to use the way he's saying it to pull it from their actual popular culture that they're going to on a regular basis. The pagan society surrounding them is rubbing off on them to the extent that they're departing from their orthodox beliefs in Christianity. And in particular, what's happening here is the people of Corinth are being persuaded by the surrounding culture to at least have a plan B or a backup plan of sorts. You know, the idea of a backup plan at its very core is centered around the fact that you don't have faith that whatever your plan A is is foolproof enough for you. This will never happen probably, but if someone did convince me to get into a plane and then to jump out of it, um, I'm going to have to have like eight parachutes attached to my body. Um, I'm afraid of heights, and so it is what it is. And uh, I'm going to need a backup parachute, and then another backup parachute, and then so on and so on. I don't have enough trust in people and even in myself to pack something like a parachute and trust that it's going to work the way it's supposed to. And I love my wife. I trust her a ton. Uh, Even if she was a professional parachute packer, I am still (laughs) 
I'm still going to put a backup parachute with me. And this is what the people of Corinth are doing with God. This is what they're doing with God. And here's the deal. We do this too. We do this too. We, and we, like the people of Corinth, can come at it from a couple different directions. On the one hand, there's the person who professes uh, belief or trust in Jesus in one moment, but chooses to place their trust in lots of other things. You're willing to give up something. You're, you're unwilling to give up something that you have uh, because you're afraid of what would happen if you gave it up while all the while professing that you trust for God to provide for you. And on the other hand, we also have a tendency to do this in a way that's a little bit by accident or what you could just call by omission. You know, in this fallen world that we live in, things don't drift towards order. They naturally devolve towards chaos. And so if I'm not paying attention to my marriage, I don't naturally develop a healthier marriage, right? You don't increase love and trust and intimacy with your spouse by ignoring them. You do so, and you do those things, in order to, you pay more attention and those things actually happen, right? Uh, whenever I was a young guy, a young single guy, um, I spared my wife this, this, this season of my life, but um, I was not good with my money and I never really learned how to spend money, to budget money, and so my answer to that problem was I just wouldn't look at my bank account. <laughs> I'm serious. I would, go, I would go weeks on end without looking at my bank account. Some of you older, wiser gentlemen in the room were like, man... And as you would expect, once I finally looked at my bank account, I wasn't surprised by how much money was in there. I was sad because there wasn't anything in there at all. And I say all that to point out that, you know, one form of hypocrisy is clearly making a conscious decision to place our faith and trust in things of the world the six days between now and next Sunday, like we say, and then we come in here and worship together and we do the same thing the next week. But another way we do this is to become lazy and complacent in the face of hard things. And when you don't try and care long enough, it gets a lot easier to not try or care. And for some of us, we, because of this, we have developed a long list of plan Bs or backup plans if God asks us to do something that doesn't sit right with us or sit right with culture. And as long as we have money and we have success or the things that make us feel good, then by all means, let's, let's follow God. But as soon as we, we don't have those things, we have a tendency to turn to whatever plan B is. And so we're on board until we aren't on board. And sometimes plan B is stashing things away, overtly not trusting that God has enough for you, is giving you what you need. And sometimes it's just choosing not to look at it. And in particular, what is Paul is addressing with this really odd thing that they're doing of the baptizing of the dead is just a backup plan that they've come up with just in case Jesus didn't rise from the dead and God isn't actually going to do what he said he would do. And so some of us in the room, uh, me included, at times have these backup plans in case things just don't work out. We're always worried that the, the rug's going to get pulled out from underneath our feet at any moment. And some of you have actually experienced that before, and you've got good reason to believe maybe it might happen again. But listen, faith in God is trusting that he's the one that actually packed the parachute for you, and you don't need to pack a spare. It means you don't need to pack a spare. And so Paul is being forceful in the second chunk of this text because his, his spiritual children 
are deviating further and further and further away from this plan that God has for them and this provision he's already given them. So he wants them to know exactly what it is that the resurrection has accomplished for them and the assurances that the resurrection actually gives us. And so in light of their hypocrisy, their fear, our hypocrisy, our fear, Paul highlights for us the good news of the resurrection at the beginning of this passage. And so we're going to turn now to verse 20. If you want to open your Bible, verses 20 through 23, the first thing we see is that Jesus' resurrection assures our resurrection. Jesus' resurrection assures our resurrection. Let me read verses 20 through 23 again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. See, the economy of God's kingdom looks different from the rest of the world. And one way um, in particular is this truth that Paul is alluding to when it comes to the two federal representative heads of humanity, if you will. In the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, Adam, as our representative head, handed us corruption. He handed us sin. So he was the first fruits of corruption, if you will. But Jesus, as a part of this grand rescue plan, for all of creation is our representative head that is now the new, better Adam. The new, better Adam. And not only has he lived a sinful life, making a way to apply this sinlessness to us in a place of corruption that Adam has given us, but in his resurrection, he's making a way for us to receive our own resurrection. And so without Jesus first experiencing his own resurrection, we don't experience our own. And this, this first fruits language is actually really important. It's an agricultural, ter- agricultural term. And, and when you plant a crop of just about anything, you're able to find out early what the rest of the crop is going to look like by the first couple of pieces of fruit that you actually pick. And so when it says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, Paul is signaling to us that because of his resurrection, as the first fruits, his resurrection from the dead, we, we don't just have to hope for our own resurrection, but we can be actually assured of our own resurrection. Andrew Wilson, who's a, who's a pastor and theologian, he said that Jesus is actually the guarantee that all his people will be resurrected as well. Because he's burst forth into life, you can, now, you can know for certain that it's only a matter of time before all his people do too. And Jesus himself in John chapter 11, verse 25 said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so as the first fruits, Jesus is giving us a clear picture of what it will look like for us when he returns. It's good news. The second thing that he's assuring us of here is that Jesus' resurrection assures us of the end of all evil. Jesus' resurrection assures us of the end of all evil. Look with me at verses 24 and 25. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Not only does Jesus' resurrection 
assure our own resurrection, but it assures us, assures us of the end of all evil. Verses 24 and 25 are alluding to the final defeat of Satan and all of his power. And only because of the resurrection and the fact that Jesus is seated on the throne does he commence to destroy the source of all evil itself. This is kind of self-explanatory, but a, a dead Jesus is a powerless Jesus. But a risen Jesus is terrifyingly powerful, and evil can't even stand before him. And so the persecution that the, the people in Corinth and that Paul is alluding to, that they're facing, when seen in the light of a risen Jesus, is that's why he can call it a light momentary affliction. Because he knows that in light of the enemies being defeated, he can go through these things that he's going through. C.S. Lewis's most famous book is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, and in it, Aslan is resurrected as an even more fiercely beautiful yet fiercely terrifying king. And when he arrives in the fray at the battle between good and evil, the way that C.S. Lewis tells how this, the whole thing ends is in like really short fashion. And I've actually found it kind of anticlimactic over the years as I've, as I've read the books. And it's because what I'm looking for is like this epic battle that I can kind of watch in one corner here and one corner here. And they're going to go at it for a while. And then he's going to be on the ropes and he's going to triumph. But the reality is that Lewis knows that is not even close to what it looks like. Because it's not meant to paint a picture of evil even standing a chance. In the battle, because once Aslan actually arrives on the scene, they absolutely didn't. And so Lewis doesn't have to write this long story. He just puts in a little note about how she was dead. <laughs> Jesus' resurrection is assuring us of the final definitive defeat of evil. The final definitive defeat of evil. The third thing we see is that Jesus' resurrection assures us of the end of death. Verse 26 simply says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I'm always struck by the fact that after Jesus raised the Lazarus from the dead, that at some point in time, after that, Lazarus dies again. He died again because death had not been defeated yet. And what is fundamentally different about Lazarus' resurrection from Jesus' resurrection and return, friends, our resurrection is that once we're raised from the dead, death will be defeated, and it will be no more. Our actual raising from the dead is what defeats death itself. And so if you're a Christian, your resurrection is a resurrection to eternal life with God. It's not a resurrection to then die again. It's a resurrection to eternal life with God. That's why Revelation 21 is so powerful to us, where it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of the end of the enemy, as well as his greatest weapon in death. And then lastly, the fourth thing, Jesus' resurrection assures us of the absolute authority of God over everything. Verses 27 and 28 say this, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Listen to this, that God may be made, that God may be 
all in all. Verses 27 and 28 point to a great comfort to the believer that, that the resurrection ultimately assures us of God's supreme authority and command over all things throughout all eternity. Paul's entire argument here is coming to its culmination. What he's saying is that when the resurrection of the dead happens, then death will be defeated, sin and Satan will be defeated, and everything God set out to do will be done. The end. God wins. No more enemies. No more enemies. My, my, my sometimes childish, finite brain has often wondered, well, if this has happened once before and Satan rebelled, couldn't that happen again? I've, I've, I've played this scenario out in my head um, throughout my life a few times where I'm like, what's going to happen if, you know, I'm, I'm in heaven in the future and I'm walking down the streets of gold and then I, and I walk up on this, this new rebellion that's happening. And then we're all plunged back into uh, another uh, thousands of year long war between good and evil. And Paul is actually speaking to that question that I have had since I was a kid with the resounding no. Absolutely not. Because the final enemy to be defeated will be death. And then the all powerful, all knowing God of the universe will suffer no more enemies. So Daniel 7 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations' languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. God alone stands in control and in power because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. You know, one of the hardest things uh, for me to, to observe, and i got to say to my shame, I do this, uh, I have a tendency to do this myself, but it's when someone comes in a room and starts tinkering with things when everything's fine, as it is. Um, it could, we could even say it's perfect the way that it is. And it always stems from a place, for me at least, of thinking that nobody else could possibly have gotten it all right, and that there's surely something in here that I need to set right or I need to fortify. And that's what the people of Corinth are doing with God, and it's also what we have a tendency to do with them too. But the reality is that God has already set everything right. And there's nothing that we need to come in and fortify or change, add to or subtract from. Because the resurrection of Jesus has assured us of all of these things that are all the answers to all of the anxieties and the fears that, in particular, the people in Corinth are feeling here that Paul is writing to them about. It stuck out to me almost immediately upon reading this text as a whole that the, the things that are leading to the people's behavior in Corinth that are in question are all the things that Paul is stressing as fully accomplished and complete in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He isn't just offering them and us hope for the future, but because of that hope that we have for a future, He's also giving us a secure place of standing in the here and now. Because our fears of the future, our, our fear of death itself, our fears that are involved in what it would actually look like to lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel, to live like Jesus is alive, are all relieved in the shadow of the almighty God of the universe who, this text says, has all authority over all things, including sin, including death. And so, the resurrection of Jesus offers up everyone in the room the assurances we long for that cause us to create these wild backup plans and deviations to have a fallback plan. And his invitation to us 
is to freely receive what's freely been given and begin even now to, to live lives of heaven breaking through on earth where he's already accomplished for us everything that we need. And so friends, God loves his children. God loves his children. And, and what he wants badly at this moment in this letter is for them to stop grasping at straws and to trust in the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. And he wants the same for us too. And so there's no backup plan needed. God's made a way for us through Jesus to experience him rightly, to experience each other rightly, to experience the world around us rightly. And if the resurrection is true, that that means the end of all backup plans. If the resurrection is true, that means the end of death, the end of the fear of death, the end of our fear of evil, the, the end of us being afraid to take risks. And that we don't have to fear that somehow the rug is going to get eventually pulled out from underneath our feet. Because the all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-loving God of the universe is our Father. Amen. Thanks be to God. Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for everything you've accomplished for us through Jesus. Thank you that we, we can live lives of, as people who aren't consumed by fear or anxiety of what tomorrow's going to hold, of what's around the next corner. When you say you've accomplished things for us, we can just trust you that you've accomplished things for us. So God, would you speak to us? Would you continue to make us more into the image of Jesus? Would you continue to break off the fears that we have? Would you help us to live like Jesus is alive today? I pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen.